I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. Our focus today will be on verses 16 to 21. We're focusing on the nature of the church. And what we've seen is that the church is not just something to be present in, it is something to be part of. And the first description of the church that we are talking about is that the church is the spirit-born family of God. The spirit-born family of God, meaning The church derives her existence, her very life, from the Holy Spirit. She does not generate her own life. And if you have not heard anything else I've said over the last couple of weeks, I hope you know this. No one is born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. You can be born into a Christian home. You can be raised by Christian parents. Your family can have a great legacy of faith. You can be on the cradle roll. You can be a church member. You can have been baptized. All of that. But if you haven't been born again, then you are not a Christian. No matter what other people say, no matter what you say about yourself, if you have not been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are not a Christian. That's not a judgment statement, it's just a statement of fact. Look at the man that Jesus has been talking to, Nicodemus, a great Jewish teacher, a great Jewish leader. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, we know that you must have come from God. No one could do what you are doing. No one could perform those miracles if God were not with him. And Jesus says, not, good job, Nicodemus, so happy. He doesn't pat him on the back. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. No one is born a Christian. You can only be born again, born from above. And we saw how that makes the church utterly unique. The church is more than just an earthly institution. It is a heavenly institution institution with an earthly mission. The church is utterly unique. We can't really compare it to a business, to a corporation, to a political action committee, to a charitable organization, to a performing arts center. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, utterly unique. Founded by the only one who has come to earth from heaven, who has in fact brought heaven to earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of this should raise a troubling question, a problem in our minds. Okay, Jesus, we have to be born again. We have to be born from above. Heaven has to intervene in our lives for us to become a Christian. Okay, got it. You tell me that that can only happen because of Jesus. But how is it that Dane Hadley, with all of my sin, and flaws, and foibles, and weakness, how can I be in communion with the holy God? How is the new birth 
possible. That is where John 3.16 comes in. This is why it is possible. Because God has intervened. God has acted. And to notice the bridge between verses 14 and 15 into 16, notice that in verse 14, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must, underline must, be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The Son of Man, that is the one from heaven, who is fully human and fully divine, the Lord Jesus Christ, he must be lifted up. Why is this necessary? Enter John 3.16 as we read together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. For God so loved the world. God is the answer for why the new birth is possible for sinners like you and like me. He is the answer. And if we know what he has done, if we fully come to grips with these verses, then we will never be the same again. Never. But so often... Our tendency is to always look on the horizon for something better to come along. The best is yet to come, we might think. If we just can fix the world in this way, if we can just elect the right people, if we can just pass the right legislation, if I can just have the right job, if I can marry the perfect person, if I can raise my children just right, if I can send them to the perfect school, if I have just the right resume, if I can tweak all these things, if I can have the perfect vacation, maybe then things will be as I want them to be. And John 3.16 breaks into our lives and into this world to say that the best has already been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Him. And so remember, life will never, ever be the same. It cannot be the same for those who believe that God has already given 
the greatest gift of love for even the worst of sinners. He's given his one and only son, Jesus Christ. If you believe that, you will never be the same. You cannot be the same. And for a church that takes hold of that truth and lives by that truth and is founded on that truth, we cannot be the same. We will not be the same. This is what it all comes down to. This verse, John 3.16, has rightly been called the gospel in a nutshell. And my goal today is to say absolutely nothing creative. I want to be really clear about that. I don't want to say anything creative. I don't want to say anything new. I hope that what I say today is consistent with the same gospel, the same faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that we are to contend for earnestly. I hope what I say today, I pray that what I say today is fully consistent with what has been preached for 2,000 years now. And I pray that no one leaves here today thinking, you know, I wonder what he was trying to say today. Huh. Or, that was kind of interesting. Maybe I'll think about that again. I want it to be plain. I want it to be clear. I want it to be simple. How dare we make complicated what God has made so plain and simple. We have only to respond. So I'm going to walk through John 3.16. Word by word, explaining it in the light of the verses that follow. And I pray that on the other side of it, you will never be the same, and I will never be the same. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no, how, no matter how long you've been in the church, no, no matter even if this is completely new to you, I pray that we will never be the same because God's greatest gift of love has already been given. Don't look on the horizon. Look back on what God has done for sinners like us. So why is it necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up? For God so loved the world. For God Echoing those words that start the whole Bible, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The same God, the one who created everything that is out of nothing, he spoke it into existence. That's the kind of power he has. The same God who upholds this world by his power, by his sovereign rule. There is nothing that we face in life. There is no circumstance outside of his sovereign rule. The same God who has made himself known to his people over and over and over again as recorded in the Old Testament. That God chose to intervene. And how did he choose to intervene? 
He acted in love. In love. And the recipient of his love? The world. Now, I'm afraid the shock value of these words is often lost on us today. Because we generally assume, well, of course God loves the world. He made it, right? I mean, there's nothing novel about that, right? Of course God loves everybody. How could he do otherwise? But what we need to bear down on is how the Gospel of John in particular uses the word world. What is the nature of this world? Well, if you back up to John 1, in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The world is blinded in ignorance. The world is desperate for help. And the root of the problem comes down to verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is a world that loves darkness. This is a world that is in open rebellion against its creator. This is a world filled with treason. This is a world filled with people like you and like me who have spurned, spurned, rejected God's love. We've chosen to lurk in the shadows instead of coming boldly into the light. And it started at the very beginning with Adam and Eve deciding that they could do a better job of governing their lives than God could. Of, of believing that God was somehow withholding something from them. That they could live a more fruitful and fulfilling life apart from their creator. And like it or not, that's your story and my story. We are the world. Warts and all. We are guilty. And our problem, the problem with the world, is fundamentally moral in character. Yes, we have a host of problems. We have psychological problems, and our tendency is often to try to treat sin as a psychological problem, to, to treat our, our worry, our anxiety, our fear, and those are real concerns. But they're not the root cause. And if you just try to prescribe something, prescribe a remedy for the symptoms, the fear, the anxiety that's in the world, well, you're never going to treat the root disease. And the root disease is our rebellion in our hearts against God. It's in my heart and your heart. We think we can do better. Oh, sure, we give lip service to God. Oh, yeah, we, we know he's God. When in fact, what we really want is a higher power to help us in our time of need. And all the while, in our head, we're imagining, we know how this world should run. It's always her problem or his problem. It's always this group or that group. 
It's never us. No, we are the problem. I am the problem. You are the problem. And it is not until we fully grasp that, it is not until we know just how desperate and how helpless we are that these words will have the impact that they should have. For God so loved the world. For God so loved rebels. For God so loved those who rejected him, who said no, who have preferred the darkness, who have said, no, God, no, thank you. We can do a better job. We don't need you. For God so loved the world. We're tempted to read this and emphasize the bigness of the world. God loves the whole world. Well, that's true. But the emphasis here in John 3.16 is on the badness of the world. And you won't understand this verse until you understand that truth. For God, the God who created all, who governs all, so loved the world how do we know he loves the world? That he gave his one and only son. His one and only son. Echoing those words of God to Abraham. Father Abraham. When God tests him in Genesis 22. He says, after, after Abraham has waited so long to have a child at all, and has even thought, that God, you're crazy. There's no way I'm going to have a child in my old age. God comes to him after he has had his son, Isaac, and God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Do you feel how those descriptions are piling up and piling up your only son, this is all you have. Your only hope for the future. Whom you love, the one you've waited for, your dearest, your best. Think of your own children. Think of your grandchildren. All of us, I think, would say, take me. Not my son, not my daughter, take me. If someone needs to die, let it be me. But that's not what God did. He sent his one and only son. His one and only son, whom he loved. And he didn't send him to rescue good people or righteous people, people who have their act together. He sent them for people who are broken and helpless and desperate. The world, his one and only son, he gave him. And he didn't just give him into this world to live and to teach and to perform miracles and to be a great moral example for us. He sent him to die. And not only did he send him to die, he sent him to die in the most gruesome God-forsaken way imaginable. His enemies looked upon him and said, what a loser. He's dying like 
a criminal. He's dying like a slave. He's nothing. And yet that is God's act of love. To send the only one who has lived the life you have not lived and I have not lived, who has lived a perfect, holy, righteous life. He's the one who steps forward as our substitute and says, take me. Take me. Take my life. Let me bleed in their place. For this is why I came. That's Jesus. That's what he's done. How do we respond? That whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him. We're told that he did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And the meaning of that is we're condemned already. Apart from Christ, this is our default setting. This is how we come into this world, as guilty sinners, fully deserving of God's judgment and wrath. We are children of wrath, like it or not. I know a lot of preachers don't say that anymore, and you're not going to hear that in a lot of churches, but that is the state of affairs. That's where we stand. And the good news is not good news until you know the bad news. And that's the bad news. Don't take my word for it. If you go to John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. God's wrath, God's good, holy, pure anger against sin. Now, we, some people squirm a little bit. They think, I don't really like to think about God as angry. I mean, God is love. Well, indeed he is. Indeed he is. But if your view of God is only love, well, then you have a flat, one-dimensional, superficial view of God. This is a holy God. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot for him to be holy and just and righteous. It must be dealt with somehow. And Jesus is the one who has dealt with it in full. In full. But apart from Jesus, we're condemned. God's wrath remains on us. We are fully deserving of his punishment. On, at any given moment, I can't say God wasn't fair to me. But oh, hear the good news. He sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Whoever. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter where you were born or how you were raised. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Whoever. Whoever. Do you feel that? Whoever believes. Notice it doesn't say whoever follows all the Ten Commandments. Whoever lives the perfect life, whoever gets their act together, whoever is a moral upstanding person, whoever has been baptized in water, 
Whoever is an upstanding member of the church, whoever is a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, whoever has gone on a mission trip, it doesn't say any of that. Whoever believes, that's the critical question. Whoever believes, whoever trusts that God's greatest gift of love has already been given for sinners, even the very worst of sinners. There is nothing that you can do or say apart from rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ that could exclude you from this word, this promise. Nothing. Whoever believes. But notice the next two words. In him. Whoever believes in him. Not in it, but in him. But so often what we do is we turn the faith into an objective body of truth. It's so that our faith isn't in Jesus, the person of Jesus. Our faith is in an idea about Jesus because we don't really know him. Our faith is in a church. And as long as the church is there, and as long as my friends are there, well, then I'm in. As long as the church does exactly what I want it to do, exactly when I want it to do it, all right, great, I'm in. As long as life goes the way I want it to go, as long as everything is smooth sailing, great. No, is your faith in him through thick and thin? Come what may, no matter what, in him, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you talk to him? Do you pray to him? Do you look to him? Is he the ultimate authority in your life? Do you say, never mind what I want, not my will, whatever Jesus wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I pray for more of that in your life. More of that in this church. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Shall not perish. Notice there are only two alternatives. It's not A, B, C, D, multiple choice. It's A and B. It's either or. Perish or have life. That's not my decision. That's not my judgment. That's what God says. And all those who remain in their sin, who fail to believe in him, who fail to trust in him, who put their faith in anyone else or anything else, who live for their career, who live for their family, who live for happiness, who live for joy, who live for good things, but not the best things, they will perish. Tragically. Because they chose their own way. And this perishing is not just a simple death, it is eternal death, eternal separation from God. That's the danger that we stand in apart from Christ. It is dangerous, and I would be reckless and derelict in my duty today from this pulpit behind the word of God if I did not tell you the danger of refusing this offer. God didn't have to make this offer. He did it willingly and graciously, for you and for me. Because 
perishing doesn't have to be your story. You can have eternal life. Not one day, but now. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Are you living? Are you really living today? Are you still waiting for something better? Do you believe the best is yet to come? Or do you see what God has given? And you are humbled. You are broken. You are in awe. God did this for me? For me? And if you're not humbled, if you're not broken, then you don't know the first thing about being a Christian. If you can yawn at this, you don't know. You don't know my Master and my Lord, Jesus. If you can walk away, if you can say, give me more time, let me think about it, then the full impact of John 3.16 has not hit home in your life. But I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, that would not happen. That would not be your story. But you would never, ever be the same on the other side of this. The best is here. Can you feel it? Can you taste and see that the Lord is good now, here? You don't have to wait. Receive Him now. For God so loved the world, so loved Dane Hadley, so loved you, that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. This is what it all comes down to. This will be the measure of your life. This and nothing else and no one else. May you have eternal life today if you've never known it before. And if your love for Jesus has grown cold, may he stir your heart like he has never stirred your heart before. May he renew in you an all-consuming passion for Jesus and the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise you for the clarity of these words. And we confess that so often, Lord, we prefer the darkness. We're afraid of coming into the light because we know if we come into the light, we'll be exposed and the secret minds will be made known. And we realize that in our hearts and minds, we are guilty of breaking your law, of suppressing the truth. But Lord, we don't want to live that way anymore. Lord, lead us into the light so that we might know real salvation, real redemption, so that we would know the power of your love and the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would live by truth, so that we would do the truth as you have made the truth known to us in the person of Jesus Christ who has told us clearly and plainly he is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, may we look no further. May we find in him our all. 
And because he lives, Lord, because he has been raised to new life, may we know eternal life starting today. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.